pray with me just a moment. Father, we ask that as we open up this gospel lesson tonight, that your Holy Spirit speak to us and that we come away from here uh, closer to Christ than when we came. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's pretty easy for me to point at various news items uh, that we see around us right now and, and illustrate to you the desperate nature of the world we live in. Uh, it wouldn't be hard for me to talk about Muslims killing Christians, about war, about shootings in the United States, about the variety of things that are going on that seem to be pressing in around us all the time. I don't know about you, but I find it very difficult to, to read or watch the news with just needing to turn it off because I actually have to try to get through the day. Uh, and sometimes it is just too oppressive. And we know instinctively, we know instinctively that things are not as they should be. And I think human beings instinctively know that things are not as they should be. And we try a wide range of things to try to fix it through more war, or more law, or less law, or uh, less war, or killing someone else, or killing ourselves. Uh, we will try any number of things uh, to make the pain go away. And what we're looking for, I think, even though we don't know it, what we're looking for is the sort of world where God actually reigns, uh, and where things are actually different. In fact, uh, theologian John Bright has this to say about the kingdom of God. We too have longed and do long for the kingdom of God, and dark days heighten the longing. Of course, tongue-tied as we are in the language of faith, we would never put it that way. We would speak of an end of war and fear, a community of nations, the triumph of justice and brotherhood, a moral world order. But there is small difference in the stuff of it between what we long for and the hope of ancient Israel that God's people would one day be established under his rule to live out its days in peace and plenty. We earnestly desire the kingdom of God, although we do not know by what name to call it, with but a recollection of a parent's recollection of a grandparent's faith in that kingdom. We desire it because we cannot help doing so. We cannot help doing so. You know, in the Gospel of Matthew, the word kingdom appears 55 times. 37 times you get the phrase kingdom of heaven or kingdom of God. It's safe to say that the message of Matthew has something to do with a king and a kingdom. And that brings us then to Matthew chapter 2 and this story of the visitation of the three wise men. And I'm going to tell you right up front that the story of the three wise men actually has nothing to do with the three wise men. Uh, it has, they are a vehicle, uh, sort of like zombies in The Walking Dead. They are the vehicle that carries us through a larger story. And the larger story in Matthew chapter 2 is a confrontation between two kingdoms. It's a confrontation between two kings and how God is unfurling and unrolling his plan uh, in the world. And so I want to unpack, and we're going to, we're going to be really nerdy tonight. So if you don't like, like nerdy history, I'm sorry. But the Herods are so fascinating to me that I spent like two weeks once reading what I could read to understand them. And so as we unpack this, you need to know a couple of things. In Scripture, there are four different Herods being mentioned. Uh, in Matthew 2, it's Herod the Great. Uh, at the end of the Gospels, the Passion Week, Jesus is set before Herod. John the Baptist is beheaded by Herod. That is Herod Antipas, son of Herod the Great. In Acts chapter 12, Peter is imprisoned by a Herod, 
and James is killed by a Herod. That is Herod Agrippa I, grandson of Herod the Great. And in Acts 26, Paul stands in front of Agrippa, who is called Herod Agrippa II, son of Herod Agrippa I, grandson of Herod the Great. Now that you know that, we will continue. There are four of them, and you need a scorecard to keep track of them. But the, the Herodian line is really, really important. But first, let's talk a little bit about the Magi. Who were these guys that are going to take us on this journey through the story? Uh, they were seers. They were astrologers. They were the wise men of Babylon. They would have been held in high regard. Tradition tells us there were three of them that came to Bethlehem. That seems unrealistic. Uh, you did not make large journeys from Babylon to Jerusalem with just three of you. You typically came with an entourage, and you had money and baggage and weapons and protection. You came in a caravan. So these guys roll into little old Bethlehem with maybe 20 or 30 people in their train. Uh, this is not a quiet visit. I imagine uh, the typical wife, if 30 people show up at your house and say, we want to see your child, that's going to make you just a little bit nervous. Uh, it's also going to uh, get some attention. And so when these gentlemen roll into Jerusalem first, it's obvious that they're there. It's not like they can just sneak in. And Herod finds out about them, and he invites them to come see him. And so what were they looking for? Well, we, we know that they were looking for uh, the star of Bethlehem. This star that had appeared in the sky, and there's a lot of speculation about what it was, and I'm not interested in that question tonight. But they had some sort of heavenly body that appeared to them that led them to Jerusalem. And how did they know to look for this? Well, as astrologers, they would have always been looking at the stars, looking for divine signs in the heavens. But also remember that they're coming from Babylon, where the Jewish people were enslaved uh, during the second uh, captivity of the Jews. And when the Jews returned to Israel, not all of them returned. And to this day, we know from archaeological evidence that there were great Jewish schools left in Babylon. And these were Jews who had heard all the prophecies about a coming Messiah. And it is very likely that as those Jews stayed in the land of Babylon and prospered, that their prophecies and their teachings spread out among the people so that these wise men, these seers, astrologers from Babylon, had come into contact with Jewish prophetic teaching. And so they were perhaps aware of something that was supposed to happen. We also know uh, from history that uh, there was a prophecy recorded by the uh, uh, historian Suetonius. Uh, speaking of Vespasian, the Roman emperor, uh, everyone knew at the time of Jesus' birth that there was this prophecy coming out of the Middle East that some great king was going to come. Now Herod, as we'll get into in a minute, was a paranoid despot. And anyone talking about another king coming out of his land was going to get his attention. And so we know that the Jews had the prophetic word of the Old Testament. We know that that probably spread to the Babylonians. And we also know that there were just these general prophecies all around the Middle East of great kings that were supposed to rise up. And so it isn't terribly surprising that three wise men from the Middle East would make their way to Jerusalem looking for a king. Uh, we know from Numbers 24, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel. He will crush the foreheads of Moab, the skulls of all the sons of Sheth, and go on from there. And so we know 
that these prophecies are around and people are aware of them. And so these wise men, they come into Jerusalem in their large entourage and they get Herod's attention. And they're asking about a king that's supposed to come out of, out of Israel and they've come to worship him. And Herod gets very nervous about this. But before we can understand Herod, we need to understand Herod's life. And this is where we're going to get really nerdy, so bear with me. Herod uh, is the son of a man named Antipater. Antipater was a very powerful man. His name was Antipater the Edomian. Uh, Edomian is the name that the Romans called the Old Testament Edomites. The Edomians were not ethnically Jewish. They were Edomites that during the reign of the, um, of the Hasmonean uh, rulers of Israel, the Edomites were conquered and they were forced to convert to Judaism. So the Herods were not ethnically Jews. They were Edomites who had been forced to convert to Judaism. That is something important to remember. So Herod's father, Antipater, was the right-hand man of a very weak king of the Hasmonean line. The Hasmoneans were the descendants of the Maccabees, who overthrew the Greeks, killed a bunch of priests in the temple, and for a few hundred years, Israel had a little bit of independence. And so Hyrcanus II was the last of these Hasmonean kings, and Antipater, Herod's father, was his right-hand man who actually ran the show because Hyrcanus II was very weak. And they had enemies all around them. On the west, you had the Romans. On the east, you had the Parthians. And in the south, you had Cleopatra of Cleopatra and Mark Antony fame. And everybody wants a piece of Israel. So Antipater ingratiates himself with Caesar, uh, with Julius Caesar. Uh, he's, a, he's a faithful soldier. He's a good soldier. He's a good leader. He becomes friends with Julius Caesar. But then you have the great betrayal of Julius Caesar, Cassius and Brutus, et tu Brute. And Antipater changes sides, and he gives financial support to Cassius and to Brutus. But Cassius and Brutus lose, don't they? They assassinate Julius Caesar, but they lose the, the civil war after that to Mark Antony and Octavian, who becomes Caesar Augustus. And Antipater uh, is sort of on an island because he backed the wrong horse. He gave money to Brutus and Cassius, and they lost. He's on his own. But in the chaos that he created by helping support the, re the rebels, it again buys Israel a small window of a few decades where they kind of have their own rule. And in that environment, Herod the Great, Antipater's son, comes to the throne. But he has a problem. Because on the east side, you have the Parthians, and you have the nephew of Hyrcanus II. And they come in, and they kick Herod off of the throne, and now he has nowhere to go. So he decides to go to Rome and beg mercy from Caesar Augustus and Mark Antony. But to do this, he has to disown his father. So Herod the Great's first great political act is to throw his dad under the bus. And to basically say, my dad was wrong, and I will be a faithful soldier. And he befriends Mark Antony. Mark Antony and Caesar Augustus convinced the, uh, the uh, Roman Senate in 37 B.C. to declare Herod the Great King of the Jews. He's named by the Romans King of the Jews. And uh, it's 34 A.D. then, Mark Antony comes back into Jerusalem. He pushes out the Parthians. He puts Herod the Great on the throne. So now, Herod the Great is a puppet king under Caesar Augustus and Mark Antony. But then there's more intrigue, and I could go on and on and on. 
Mark Antony and Cleopatra, of course, have a movie. And, 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 and they then turned on Caesar Augustus. And Herod the Great backed them, just as his father backed the rebels before him. Guess what? They lost again. So this time, though, Herod the Great goes back to Caesar Augustus, begs for mercy, and Caesar Augustus leaves him in place. And that brings us to this place right here. Caesar Augustus has put Herod on the throne. Herod is a wily politician. Augustus calls him the wily Edomian. But he is an Edomian. He's not a Jew. And he's not a Hasmonean. He's not from the Jewish king line. So he has to do something to legitimize himself. So he marries a Hasmonean princess, the granddaughter of Hyrcanus II, named Meramne II. Meramne has two sons by him, Alexander and Aristobulus. They grow up. Herod decides they're all a threat. He kills Meramne. He kills Alexander. He kills Aristobulus. He kills several of the other relatives. He's a bloodthirsty megalomaniac who's paranoid that the real Hasmonean princes will overthrow him and the people will support them because he's not a real Jew and he's not a Hasmonean. So he kills his own family off. Now, he had five wives. He had a lot of kids. So maybe he wasn't going to miss those. Uh, But he was a bloody, bloody guy. And it caused Caesar Augustus to say of Herod uh, the Great that it is better to be his hes than his huias. It's a Greek pun. Hes is pig and huias his son. It is better to be his pig than his son because as a Jew he wouldn't eat his pig, but he might kill his sons. And so this is the guy that is in charge when Jesus is born. A paranoid despot who is a bloodthirsty killer. And from the moment Jesus is born, and from the moment he comes to the attention of Herod the Great, his life is in danger. And right off the bat, we see a conflict between the kingdom of the world and the kingdom of heaven. And the kingdom of the world wants to shut it down and kill it and make the king of God uh, go away. You see, he's protecting his, his empire of dirt. And we see in verse 3, um, I'm going to read it to you. The, the wise men come in verse 2. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. A couple of things we need to note there. Notice that as soon as it becomes known that there is a king of the Jews that has been born, not only is Herod nervous, but all of Jerusalem is nervous. Because they've just come out of a series of civil wars. And Herod is a bloodthirsty guy. And so if you make Herod mad, somebody's going to be killed. And so Herod brings in the priest and he says, where is this Messiah? And without hesitation, they know. Did you get that? Bethlehem. They, they don't even have to think hard about it. They know that it's in prophecy. Uh, Micah 5.2, they're being told, he will be in Bethlehem. And these priests, these, these men of, of, of renown, of scholarly worth, at the top of the food chain in Israel, having the ear of the king, say nothing else. They don't want to rock the boat. And it seems to me that what we have here is a king and priests and people in Jerusalem who long for the kingdom but don't want the king. Because the king is going to upset their apple cart. 
the king, when he comes into his kingdom, when he comes into his own, will turn everything upside down. He wants to come into our lives and he wants to turn us upside down. He wants to take away the prestige and the power and he wants to put us in a place where we are dependent upon him and where he is on the throne. And as much as we pay lip service to wanting that sort of thing, when sometimes when the king shows up, we want to run the other way. Because we have something we're hanging on to. Herod has fought really hard for what he has and he doesn't want to give it up. And the priests who have his ear, they're safe and they're in a position of authority and they don't want to give it up. And they like what they have. And they don't want to let the rightful king reign. And so we have in this story, a story of the, the fake king, the imposter king, the, 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 the usurper of the throne being set aside. This is the story that if we were Jewish people hearing this, this is what we would hear. We would hear that Herod the Great's days are numbered. Later in the passage, which... We haven't read tonight. We know that Herod orders all the babies in Bethlehem under the age of two to be killed. Uh, There's good reason to believe that that happened in 4 B.C., that Jesus was probably born around 6 B.C., maybe early 5 B.C., and that this murdering of the children in Bethlehem happened around 4 B.C. Do you know when Herod the Great died? He died in 4 B.C. uh, of a brutally painful disease that nobody knew what it was and it took him four months to die now i don't know what that means scripture doesn't tell me but it seems to me more than a small coincidence that when the king of earth tried to kill the king of heaven god was going to have none of it and herod was dis- was removed from this earth that very same year when the king has been sent by god there is nothing that will stand in the way of his kingdom There's nothing that will usurp him and nothing that will remove him. And so we have the kingdom of God coming into the world when Jesus is born. And the thing we need to recognize is that the kingdom of God is not desperate for citizens. And though the king loves you, he will not beg us. He will not beg us. The kingdom is open to whoever will come, even the least likely people from the least likely places. This is the lesson that Jesus says over and over again as he's dealing with the Pharisees. You have turned your hearts hard your hearts hard against me, but I will take whoever is willing to turn to me and to let me be king. They are all welcome. And we have here a fulfillment of Micah chapter uh, 4 where it speaks of people coming from all over the world to worship the king. And they've come here, these wise men, from a dark place, Babylon, They've come from a dark place to see the light. And they're welcomed. And God blesses their effort. He blesses their effort. He, 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 he blesses their willingness to serve and to worship. Because he gives to them a vision, a, a dream, to turn away, to go a different way. Both to protect his king, but also to protect them. And what I want to tell you is this. And I know my sermon is short tonight. But what I want to tell you is this. That the king has come. He has been born. The rule of this world is being overturned. Uh, The kings of this world are desperate to hang on for power. And it may very well appear to us that they are winning. But part of the Christian hope is that they will not win forever. That the king has come. That the usurpers are being set aside. And that whoever will trust in Christ is welcome into that kingdom. 
And there's no harm that will come to you if you are in Christ that has not been foreseen by Him and will not be used in your life to further His purposes for you. And so Jesus comes into a deadly world with intrigue and bloodthirstiness. And He does it for you and for me to save us out of a world with intrigue and bloodthirstiness, to show us something better, to redeem us and to create in us something better, and ultimately to restore the entire world. And it wasn't easy. And it wasn't simple. And from the very beginning, there have been powers working against it. So have faith, have confidence that the powers of this world will not silence the gospel. Uh, It may squelch it a little bit. It may push us around a little bit. But the kingdom of God will win. And the gospel will go forth. And God will see his king put on the throne. And that's the sort of thing we can trust in. It'll carry us through the day. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would open our hearts to these truths, that we would have confidence in your son, that we would know that, that he uh, is, is unable to be defeated. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.